um, happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers out there. I apologize. I have a cold that's settling in my throat a little bit, so I'm not going to be able to yell at you like I usually do. <laughs> so um, you might have to keep your neighbor awake this morning. I'm not sure I'll be able to, to do it. Um, but I want to start by telling you an uh, encounter that Pastor John Ortberg had with uh, a member of his church, someone who visited his church. He said he, he wondered if the church in which um, John worked might be worldly. And Ortberg asked what he meant, and the man pointed out some stylistic choices of music that in his mind seemed to match the Hollywood culture more than what he held as traditional church culture, explaining, the man said, Christians are supposed to be different from people in the world by being more loving and more gentle. Everybody knows we're not, so don't we have to do something to show we're different? Okay? And Ortberg summarized it this way. He says, in other words, if we can't be holy, shouldn't we at least be weird? And it seems that historically, Christians have excelled at this philosophy, and nothing represents it more than, than these um, Christian album covers, uh, like the Karatist Preacher, or the exciting Jerry and the singing Goths singing their hit number, God's Gonna Get You For That, okay? Um, Ira North's, if I were a woman, I don't even want to know what that's about. I eat kids and other songs for rebellious children. <laughs> what? What on earth? This is so weird. God's chosen puppet. What in the world? The rebels. Okay, it's five guys in white shirts, suits, and ties. Really? Is that all you can do, rebels? Is that all you? Is that really? This one's strange. The nearer the bone, the sweeter the meat. I have no, I have no idea. Okay, that one kind of speaks for itself. Um, okay, those are not sweater vests. Okay, I just, I just want to go down on the record. Those are not sweater vests, and neither are those. Um, that's more like a sweater tard kind of a thing. Um, and I know I probably just poked fun at somebody's uncle, and I realized that, that there are um, cultural differences and time differences, but hey, some of that stuff's just slap weird, okay? It's, it is just slap weird. And Christians, we, we have weird down, it seems. Um, my favorite, probably my favorite bit of wisdom from Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer describes a better, a better mark for Christians when he says, through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling, but there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for us on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is the universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? He says, at the close of his ministry, Jesus looks forward to his death on the cross, the open tomb, 
and the ascension. Knowing that he is about to leave, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. It is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Schaefer says, this passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian not just in one era or one locality, but at all times and all places until Jesus returns. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, Jesus says. And we could add to that the Apostle Paul in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has filled the law. And Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. John writes, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Again, he says, this is his commandment so that we that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded us. And again, in chapter 4 of 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. A couple verses later, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 2 John, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, deploying all of my extensive Bible study skills, I'm picking up that how we love one another is a pretty big deal. You think? How you love these folks and you love these folks matters a great deal. Um, And today, we want to think together about the shape that love should take. And we want to learn from none other than the Apostle Paul. Paul is eminently qualified to talk on this subject. If you've ever been to a wedding and they read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love is all these different things. That's Paul. He wrote that. Um, We want to look at his writing today in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles, you can follow along with me there. But To get the full effect of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, I want to back up to this a couple of chapters earlier in that same letter to the church in a city called Ephesus um, to review a couple of things so chapter 4 makes sense. And the first is an absolutely beautiful description of what we call the good news. And it comes from Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, on the basis of this wonder, this most wonderful of news, that there's a grace greater than our sin in Christ... He now says um, to them that you must, as a result of believing that good news, you must live differently. And he uses the language of put off and put on. There are things you should put off and not do. There are things you should put on and you must do. 
Ephesians 4, our passage, he says, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that is, as the unbelievers do. We need to walk differently, live differently. And down in verse 21, it says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, in Jesus, that is, as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then verse 24 says, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There are things, because we believe in Jesus, there are things that we must no longer do, we are to put off, and there are things that we must begin to do, and those are things we must put on, is the language that he's used, using here. Essentially, he's saying, live different, okay? Live different. And when he says that, what he really means, essentially, is love different. Love different. He says, we must bear the mark of a Christian we must imitate God in the way that we love. Now, there's a summary to the passage we're going to look at in chapter 5. The first two verses really summarize the passage we're going to look at today. And he says, therefore, he told us, just told us a bunch of things to put off and put on. And he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he's saying, like father, like son, basically. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the mark of a Christian is that we would love one another as God loves. Okay. And the Apostle Paul, who's writing this, and the Apostle John are on the same page about this. Listen to what John writes. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so the way we love one another is how we love God back. You remember, we're in the middle of a, uh, of a series um, called Devoted this year, and we're looking at the three great loves that every follower of Jesus is to be devoted to. Okay? And that is, we love God, and we love his people, the church, and we love our neighbors. Okay? We are devoted to those things. And the circle we're looking at, love for one another, is an expression of our love for God, okay? It's how we love God back. And these verses are a summary of all the put-offs and put-ons that we're just about to, to look at. Um, he lists a number of things in the back end of chapter 4 that we're going to look at, um, and I'm going to pile them into three buckets just so we can um, focus on them a little better and and keep them in mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the passage out of order, and I'm going to put them into three buckets. And when I do that, I want you to ask the question. I want you to leave with clarity today. What is my bucket? Which of these three buckets is the one that God would have me grow in learning how to love his church better, the people in my small group, the people in this room 
people in my family better? What is the Spirit of God pointing out to you that you need to put off and put on as a result of this? So look at Ephesians 4 with me. Let's pray and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, by your Spirit and your Word, help us. Show us. Reorient us. Put us back on course today that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we love one another in the way you prescribe. Help us, Father, we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, the first of the three buckets has to do with how we talk to one another. Paul says one of the ways that we love one another is the way that we talk to one another. Verse 25, therefore, he says, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Um, we're to put away falsehood. Okay, bottom line, of course, that means I shouldn't lie to you and you shouldn't deceive me. Okay? That's right at the heart of it. Um, but that's harder than it sounds. It's interesting, they did a survey a number of years back of uh, it was a who's who survey of high school students. Who's who is kind of like the creme de la creme, the very best. And this is what they found of 2,000 of the nation's finest students. 78% admit to cheating. 67% have copied someone else's homework. 40% have cheated on a test or quiz. Another uh, survey I ran across, this is on workplace issues, not classroom issues, and they said that um, 63% of people have called in sick at work when they weren't sick at all, right? I had a number of years ago, a friend, he was one of, he was one of the leaders in our church, and uh, I exercised my special pastoral powers. Did you know, know that I have special pastoral powers? Well, I have special pastoral powers, and I exercised these, and... Um, I, I found hard evidence that my brother was involved in sin. He was enmeshed in sin. So I went to my friend and I said, hey, buddy, are you involved in this? And I knew he was. I had evidence. I know powers, but I had evidence. Um, and he looked me right in the eye and he said, no, I'm not doing any of that. He looked me in the eye and he lied to me. Um, you know, dishonesty presses all of us in little ways a lot of times. Maybe we'll exaggerate or we'll avoid or we'll be unwilling to disclose or reveal something that puts us in a bad light. And I think that's where my friend was. And I had to say to him, so what about this? I've got this. And then, and then we had a conversation, a truthful conversation. We are to speak the truth to our neighbors, to one another. We are to be truthful because if there's no truth, there's no trust, right? And we're members of one another, one body, as we've been talking about a couple weeks ago. Um, if there's no trust, then we are divided and our relationships are marked by, by mistrust. Um, let, me, let me give you an example. Suppose I tell you a story, and it's a good one. It's a good story. You like it. You laugh at it. You remember it. It's so good, you remember it when you leave. 
Okay? And you get home and you're poking around the internet and uh, just happenstance, you run across that story. But it's not about me. And I said it was about me. It's somebody else's story. And I lied to you and said it was about me. Okay? What just happened in our relationship? Exactly. Are you going to trust me like you trusted me before I lied to you about that story? No way. Um, see, we must put off falsehood, lying and such, and speak truth. Now, as a backdrop to that, in, in Ephesians, there may be a bigger idea operating here, and that is that we don't just speak it's more than just speaking truthfully in everyday matters, but we, we would speak the truth to each other, God's truth to each other. Um, this is commonly what Paul has in mind when he writes about truth in, in Ephesians. He says in 4.15 that we are to speak the truth, that is the truth about God, in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So Paul may very well have something in mind like this as part of this truth-telling, that we, having put away the false hope that other gods satisfy, now we're to speak the truth to one another about the love of God for us and how it does satisfy. Does your life, do your words, point people to the supreme satisfaction of the love of God for them. I mean, can you remember a time, the last time maybe, when you had a conversation with somebody about things that mattered to them and they were struggling and you said to them, perhaps it was a believer at work or perhaps someone in our church, and you assured them that God loved them. It's just pretty central to what we believe and what we talk about. Can you remember doing that? Do your words convey the truth, that truth, of the love of God to others? Or are you too isolated from, from other Christians to even ever have those kind of conversations? Does your life convey the truth to others? Maybe more specifically, does your lifestyle convey the truth? Does what you wear or what you drive or what you live in convey the truth that your hope is in God and not in the riches of this world? Or does it confuse that message? Look, I drive a 98 Ford Ranger. Okay? There is no confusion about where I'm looking for satisfaction in life. It is not in my transportation. Okay? Um, but think of it this way. If I lived in a community where... Um, alcoholism was rampant, I would be disinclined to drink alcohol. And if I lived in a community, which I kind of do, where materialism was rampant, where we kept score by what you wear and where you live and what you drive, I would be reluctant, for instance, to drive a Tesla, even though they're the coolest thing ever. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not that you can't have a decent car, or live in a nice house, or wear nice clothes. I mean, my gosh, my Ranger has air conditioning, okay, and it's got 
it's got really cool retro crank windows, you know? Um, so you can have nice stuff, but what does your lifestyle communicate about satisfaction in God? Does it just confuse your message? Are you being a truthful person, kind of across the board, a person of integrity? Do you need to put off falsehood in some area and put on truth-telling? Might be something very big, and you may need to sit down with one of our leaders and let, you, let us help you come clean about the truth. Or it may just be something really small that you think you should just overlook. You should just do it. You should tell the truth. A little farther down on his put-off, put-on list, Paul has a little bit more to say about our speech, this first bucket. In verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A beautiful expression, that it may give grace to those who hear. The number of swear words in the vocabulary of the average American male is 58. It doesn't mean that he swears 58 times. It means that he knows 58 different swear words. Now, the average American female, it's only 29. Ladies, that's still terrible. You shouldn't feel good about that, okay? I only know 29 swear words. That's still bad. But Paul's talking about something bigger. He's talking about that kind of um, coarse or immoral or unwholesome or vulgar language. But he's also talking about speech that divides. He's also, the language here is also things that are just worthless speech. You know, it's interesting that um, on average, both men and women speak pretty much 16,000 words a day. There's no real difference. But essentially, when you start looking at the extremes, there, uh, one guy in the survey um, spoke an estimated 795 words a day, words on average. 16,000 is normal. He spoke 795. It's a guy, right? Well, there's another person that spoke 47,000 words a day. Okay. That's a guy too, believe it or not. See, idle, if you're a 47,000 word a day person, idle words, ceaseless chatter does not build up. We're committed to words that build up, to speaking words that bring grace to one another. So as parents, we don't run our kids down when they mess up, which is ceaselessly, okay? We don't belittle them. We don't berate them. We don't threaten them. We are their greatest encouragers. As brothers and sisters in this room, we don't gossip about each other. We don't. Not even as prayer requests. Okay? There's an old story, of course. There are three preachers uh, on a non-productive fishing trip, and they start to discuss different topics to pass the time. And one preacher said he thought it would be nice if they confessed their biggest sins to each other and then prayed for each other. They all agreed, and the first preacher said that his biggest sin was that he liked to sit at the beach now and then and watch pretty women stroll by. Second preacher confessed that his biggest sin was that he went to the horse racing track every so often and bet a small amount of money on a horse. Turning to the third preacher, they said, brother, what is your biggest sin? And with a grin, he said, my biggest sin is gossip. <laughs> See, gossip affects our relationship. It undermines unity. 
It undermines trust, and it divides us. We simply, we simply have a zero tolerance for gossip. Even what you post online. Perhaps especially what you post online. That's a, a great tragedy. This thing in the Chicago Tribune is typical. It says, the article says, teenage gossip, always hurtful, but once limited to note passing, phone calls, and scrawls on bathroom walls, is more pervasive and vicious than ever thanks to the internet. One Highland Park, Illinois girl, now a senior in high school, said that as an eighth grader, she was the subject of an online rumor that said she had slept with the entire football team. She says, I think it was started by the ex-girlfriend of a boy on the team, but it didn't matter where it came from. She said, people just want to believe it, and there was no way to refute it. She said, I wanted to kill myself, and some kids do. Again, I can't urge you strongly enough to apply this teaching about your speech that the Apostle Paul is giving us to what you post online. We are to be a people who encourage one another, who give thanks for one another. You know, catching people, serving well, using their gifts well around here, and just taking them aside and say, thanks. I thank God for you. You're doing a fabulous job. Paul says, put off loveless speech that's marked by falsehood and corruption and put on conversations that are marked by truth that build one another up. It's interesting, what follows that last statement there about speech is this stern warning. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Essentially, he says, follow my teaching, perhaps especially the teaching about our words that he just said. Follow my teachings and bring God joy. Disobey my teachings, perhaps especially about the way we speak about one another, and make God weep. When we lie to one another, God weeps. When we gossip about one another, God weeps. When we ridicule or put down one another, God weeps. When we post hurtful things online, God weeps. Would you grieve the one who redeemed you, who rescued you and bought you to be his own? This morning, are you mindful of speech that you use that is less than loving? If so, at the close of our time, during our response time, you should come forward for prayer and to repent of that. It's a good first step of obedience, and it makes sure there is a first step of obedience. So, first bucket concerns our speech. Second bucket, he writes about, concerns our anger. And that's back in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And right away, some of you are drawn to the idea that, hey, there's a command to be angry there. I get to be angry. And that's possible. Um, it could be a reference to what we call righteous anger. Um, you know what righteous anger is, right? 
Righteous anger is my anger. Your anger is just bad temper, okay? My anger is righteous. Righteous anger, honestly, let's just say it's really, really, really rare. Most of our anger is not righteous. Okay. Um, and it's possible to read this another way. This is like a concession. Instead of a, uh, a bold-faced command to be angry, but it has a conf- as the, source of a con- the force of a, confession, a concession, rather, that says, when you are angry, as you are angry, assumes that our anger can happen. But you couple this with verse 31 in our passage where he says, let all bitterness, all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He kind of builds this crescendo of different descriptions of our anger and says, put it all away. His point here clearly is not to endorse a kind of anger. It's to tell you, put off anger. Put it off. Um, And the reason why, he says, is because it gives, in verse 27, it gives the devil an opportunity. Some of your Bibles render that a foothold. It's the idea of giving the devil a place. It can even be used of a room. Hey, come on in and have a room, Satan. That's what your anger does. And it might be good just to remind ourselves of what Jesus taught us about the devil. He says to the, to the religious leaders he was fussing at, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Come on in. Have a room. See, we give Satan access, Paul is saying, to our relationships by our anger. We give him his own room. This is true, so very true in our families. How many times have angry, hurtful, um, rash words been spoken in our homes and relationships are broken or at least distanced as a result? It's true in this room too, in this family. Words spoken in anger are horribly divisive. How do we keep from giving in to our anger? And Paul has simply two recommendations for us in our passage. He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Quickly reconcile. Okay? Quickly reconcile. I love the story that B.R. Holt tells of creative quick reconciliation. He says, uh, fighting rush hour traffic from suburban Maryland to Washington, D.C. can cause its share of near misses and irritating moments. He says, one morning, I saw a young lady darted her compact car from a side street into the stream of traffic immediately in front of a driver just a few car lengths ahead of me, forcing him to brake sharply to avoid hitting her. He avoided hitting her by inches and was obviously furious Within seconds, traffic stopped at a red light, and I watched him, he says, pull up behind the offender, leap from his car, and stride angrily towards hers. Clearly, he intended to give her a royal bawling out, he says. But seeing him coming, 
this young lady who was very attractive, he said, jumped from her car and ran to meet him, a big smile on her face. And before he could say one word or know what was happening, she had thrown her arms around him, hugged him tightly, and planted a passionate kiss on the lips. Then, just as quick, she was back in her car and driving away, leaving her antagonist standing in the middle of the road, looking still speechless, looking somewhat confused and embarrassed, but no longer angry. Right? <laughs> hey, hey, it works in my marriage, right? It's, it's hard to be mad at somebody you're kissing on, right? Now, I honestly, that is one thing that I have learned over the years is that I must deal with my anger quickly. If I find that I am angry towards Steph for any reason and God makes me aware of it, I must go and make it right. I must go and forsake it. I cannot wait until the next morning. It's best if I don't even wait until the next hour, but as soon as God makes it known, I go and make it right. Put on quick reconciliation. If you are mindful of anger that is dividing you from someone in this room, then you should tend to it. Paul is saying today. If you have bitterness or a grudge against someone in our church, you should tend to it today. Don't let the sun go down. Don't give the devil access, a room in that relationship. Is that, is that really what you want to do? And to reconcile quickly, this is the other thing he says about anger. He says, you must be eager to forgive. Look down at verse 31 with me. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, anger usually revolves around me. Okay? Not always, but typically I am angry because someone has done something to me, okay? You wronged me, or at least I thought you wronged me. You cut me off in traffic because you thought you were more important than me, and I'm angry with you about that. You spoke that way to my children, and I'm angry with you. You spoke to me that way. You shamed me, belittled me, ignored me, wronged me in some way, devalued what matters to me somehow. And because anger typically involves at least a perceived wrong against me, forgiveness is a necessary part of diffusing anger. Um, theologian Miroslav Volf says, to triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. To fail to forgive when someone has wronged us and provoked us to anger is that second evil. We, Paul says, are to forgive as we've been forgiven. And how is it that we've been forgiven? He talks about it in the same letter back in the first chapter. He says, in in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So if I am to forgive as I have been forgiven, I forgive 
lovingly, freely, lavishly, undeservedly, enduringly, and perhaps with great cost. Put off anger, he says. Put on forgiveness. This is how we imitate God and love unselfishly. Is God asking you to do that with someone that you are angry with? Are you mindful of that right now? If so, during our response time at the close of the service, you should come to the steps. And you should ask God for grace and mercy to forgive. And then you should go to the person that has wronged you, that you're angry with, okay, before the sun goes down. Okay. So the first bucket is how we talk to each other. The second bucket has to do with our anger. And there's one little small bucket right in the middle of it all that has to do, curiously enough, with our work. And it's in verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, evidently, back in the first century, there were thieves in the church. Okay? There were people who had been thieves. That was their vocation. They met Christ, and now he says, don't be thieves anymore. Okay? That's the old thing. Put that off and put on honest work. Now, most of us, as far as I can tell, do not have thievery as our vocation. Unlike this Walmart employee I ran across, her story in Decatur, Texas, she created bogus returns, said people returned them, and then pocketed the money. Up to $8,000 a day at one point, she, she stole $240,000 from the Walmart that she worked at before she got caught. So that's, most of us are not doing that. I hope you're not doing that. But to a far lesser degree... We can dabble in this kind of selfish stealing. You ever cheat your employer? Pad a timesheet? Overstate an expense account? Use company resources, time, equipment, monies for unrelated personal game? Like we saw earlier, call in sick when you're not? It's interesting. Another survey said 75% of employees have stolen at least once from their employer. And half that many have stolen more than twice. Paul says, that must stop. That must not mark us. Just like with our speech, our work is to be marked by integrity and truthfulness, honest work. We put on honest work. We must be the most trusted employee in the building. You should be the most honest coworker on your staff. It's also important when we look at that, why, he says, we are to be doing honest work. He says we're doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we're not just working to increase our bank account or our lifestyle. We're also working so that we can share with anyone in need. Okay? So when you get a raise or a bonus, okay, it's not just for you and yours. It's so you can meet the needs of others. The, our church has a benevolence ministry, and that's a specific ministry that targets helping people outside our church who are in financial need, outside of our church family, right? We are slap out of money in the benevolence fund. We, we, 
We already gave it all away. We don't get new money until July. But word is out that we help people. And so people keep coming by the office wanting help. And on Friday, two people came by the office wanting help. And we didn't have any money for them. So what do we do? Well, three of us emptied our wallets. The problem is pastors have itty-bitty wallets, right? (laughs) So we couldn't meet their need, even though their needs were not huge. Um, But maybe you could, okay? Maybe you're that guy or that lady. Um, There used to be a guy in our church... Uh, Rob Craig oversees this ministry, oversees financial care in the church and without, outside the church. And there was a guy in our church who came to Rob and said, hey, when you encounter a need that's greater than our budget allows you to meet, I want you to let me know. And if I can't, I want to help. And so something would come up. We'd be, our resources would be exhausted. Somebody would have a need that, that they had. And uh, Rob would let this guy know if he could, he'd help. And, and if you think, if you sense right now God saying, you should be that guy or you should be that lady then you can talk to Rob, and he'll put you top of his list, and if there's a need, because that's why we're working. One of the reasons why we work, do honest work, so we have something to share with anyone in need. Now, in all of these things that we're supposed to put off and put on, remember the common denominator is that they are for others to bless and encourage them and to love them, especially the people in this room. This is how we love one another, these things we put off and put on. And by loving one another in this way, this is how we love God back. To fail to do so, Paul says, you give the devil an opportunity and you grieve the very Holy Spirit of God. The stakes are very high that we would obey what Paul is saying to us. So, what's your bucket? Is it speech or is it anger or is it doing honest work so that you might share with others when they have a need? If God is speaking to you about your bucket, let me encourage you. Grab a friend or you can come alone or you can pray with one of our leaders during the response time that the worship team is just about to lead us in. Um, We'll pray with you. You You can repent of that sin and ask God for grace to put on what you need to put on. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, if I go down there, they're going to know that I'm a sinner. Because only sinners are going down there. Because we're going down there to repent. Hey, I got bad news for you. They already know. All right? They already know you're a sinner. But now they'll know you're a repentant sinner. Which they may not have known that before. So if God by his spirit and his word is speaking to you, then let this time of response um, be your first step of obedience where you come for prayer with one of our leaders or alone or with, with a friend or whoever, family member, and ask God for the mercy that you need to put off what you need to put off and put on what you need to put on. And if you'll stand, we'll make this song our prayer. We'll ask Christ to be our vision for how we should love one another.